0: doctor's kitchen recipes health lifestyle
1: so it's a brain that is literally on fire Uh, it's a brain in which various enzymatic pathways are compromised by oxidative stress and further it's a brain that's energetically struggling because it is an ultimately an acquired mitochondropathy, the mitochondria within each neuron and each neuron can have a thousand or more mitochondria, are trying to make energy for those brain cells. They are damaged
0: by uric acid. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. So when I was at medical school, the subject of uric acid levels was typically paired with gout, high purine levels in the diet, and one of the most ubiquitous drugs, allopurinol, which is used to reduce uric acid levels by inhibiting an enzyme called xanthine oxidase, preventing crystals that can lodge in our joints, causing pain, typically the big toe. But there is a lot more to do with uric acid than just gout, as you're going to hear on today's podcast. In fact, there's so much more. I'm so surprised I haven't come across this subject in the past. Dr. Perlmutter is my guest today, and he is a board-certified neurologist and six-time New York Times bestselling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including the Archives of Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. His latest book, Drop Acid, focuses on the pivotal role of uric acid in metabolic disease and was published in February this year. Don't forget, you can also watch this podcast on YouTube. Just search for The Doctor's Kitchen on YouTube and subscribe or to there. And if you're in the mood for subscriptions, then you will absolutely love my free newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. Every single week, I send you a recipe to eat, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch, and a funny joke at the end that usually involves an ingredient as a caricature. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. David, thanks so much for taking the time to I'm jump on the pod. I'm
1: delighted to see you and spend time with you.
0: Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to this. You won't remember this, but um, when I was working in A&E in Australia uh, back in 2014, I flew all the way from Sydney to Florida to watch you at a conference. Um, I said hi to... Both you and your wife, actually, at the time, but you won't remember. But I shook your hand, and I remember going to that conference actually, and you are one of the star speakers, as you are everywhere. Um, and you really did change my opinion on on many things. Wow! Yeah, um, oh, that's but uh, hopefully a good thing, a very good thing, really good thing. And uh, yeah, I just. Uh, you, you were a real sort of a change point in the way I thought about medicine and how I kind of moved from conventional medicine to include nutritional medicine and all the other things that you talk about. It that so brings up think. a
1: really good point of, um, you know, the notion of alternative medicine mm. means one or the alternative, the other, <clears throat> as opposed to integrating ideas from the best of.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, conferences like the ones that we attend now, is a lot more inclusive. And I think a lot of uh, clinicians who perhaps are a bit more skeptical are coming around to the idea because people like yourself who are bona fide in their respective specialties uh, are really pushing the the boundaries. Right, and I
1: think some of it also is consumer driven. Mm. I think that physicians are feeling the pressure to delineate themselves in the marketplace with some degree of uniqueness. And I think the public is demanding that. Mm, yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, I was wondering where to start this conversation, but I I, oh, watched... I thought we already started. No, no, no. Uh. We are started. We're started. But uh, <laughs> we, uh, I, I managed to catch a little bit of your talk earlier today um, where you talked about 50 million years ago, how we've evolved and, and what kind of uh, elements in our Biology we we have and have sort of uh, adapted and, and and why that's so essential for survival. I wonder if you can take us back fifteen million years ago and talk to us about our evolutionary journey to where we are at the moment. Sure, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> in a couple of minutes.
1: Yeah, I can't take fifteen million years. Um, around fifteen million years ago, we were in what's called the Middle Miocene period, and it was a time when over about a million years, the Earth cooled, and as such food for our primate ancestors became less and less available. So it was a selection pressure genetically to determine who would survive and who would not. And a group of primates had a little bit of an advantage whereby they were able to be more thrifty with the foods that they consumed, make more fat and therefore had basically a superpower that uh, cultivated their survival because they could get through times of food scarcity by virtue of the fact that they laid down a little bit more fat, not that they became obese, but they would have an advantage over the next primate because he or she did not have that ability. And now it turns out that we understand what that change was. We have the ability to uh, retroactively look at genetics of our ancestors by looking at current, current day primates. And what the change was was a change in the gene suite That codes for an enzyme called uricase. That enzyme breaks down uric acid. And as such, a reduction of that gene functionality led to less uricase, less breakdown of uric acid. So over a million years, their uric acid levels climbed. Now, for people who are thinking about uric acid and gout, all well and good, but it's um, the uric acid in the context of giving them that advantage, that extra fat, increasing their blood sugar, increasing their blood pressure, that uh, while not dramatic, was enough to keep them alive and become our ancestors such that we as humans also have a uricase deficiency and have higher uric acid levels. As such, our bodies are very thrifty and want to store away every precious calorie that we consume for the upcoming winter that obviously never never uh, evolves.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things there, um, increasing in, in, in body fat, increases in blood pressure, increases in blood sugar. M- right. Most people listening to this podcast will think of those things as a bad thing. Right. But as you've quite eloquently it's pointed out- It's absolutely contextual. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right.
1: In the context of our ancestors, it would be a home run- to be insulin resistant, to have higher blood sugar, to make and store fat and have higher blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Those would be advantages as it relates to your ability to survive. Nowadays, of course, we do everything we possibly can not to have those characteristics in our physiology. And therefore, now that we understand this relationship to uric acid, we understand how powerful a tool that becomes for us in helping reduce those very metabolic issues that we need to gain control over.
0: Yeah. So, so let's paint that environmental picture a little bit clearer for the listeners here. So back thousands of years ago, when we have these deficiencies that enable us to have those protective mechanisms, what kind of environment are we, are we living in? What kind of hostilities are we dealing with those actually become an adaptive, uh, an, an adaptive uh, role? Well, the,
1: the real trigger for the whole process was uric acid elevation as a downstream metabolite of fructose consumption, consuming those wild berries that our ancestors would come upon, that primates consume in preparation for hibernation. Uh, I mean, for, in preparation for winter, that bears consume in preparation for hi- hibernation. <clears throat> so that signaling pathway to make us fatter was adaptive and led to our survival. Now we have our foot on uh, the accelerator of that pathway 365 days a year, preparing by storing and making fat uh, for a time of scarcity that we will not experience. So that fat uh, lipogenesis process is totally in overdrive. That process by which our bodies think it needs to make more blood sugar is in overdrive. And when we see the expansive rise of obesity, overweight and diabetes globally, now we have a real good understanding as to why it's happening.
0: Yeah, so it seems to me like we're, we're utilizing ancient hardware our bodies essentially I and mean, we're putting it into a new context right now where we have uh, availability of nutrients all the time. We have a, a, a dense calorie uh, diet across all different countries. Um, we have an abundance of, of sugar uh, whenever we want. And obviously we're hardwired to want that sugar as well. So how do we adapt our, our ancient hardware for the, for the modern environment? Yeah, it's we- a great
1: question. In fact, it's the central theme of, of drop acid that we are, um, being served to the detriment by this mismatch between our evolution and therefore uh, our genome and our current physiology and the current environment in which we live. They're not lining up and it it explains the manifestations that I just uh, delineated of the metabolic issues that are so pervasive globally uh, today. So uh, how do we do that? Well, what we do is we bring the adult back in the room Uh, Many of uh, us uh, people around the world are functioning more from a more primitive brain center, the amygdala, and making decisions without any concern for consequence. What might this uh, decision impart on me health-wise tomorrow uh, or next year? How might this decision not just affect me, but you or other people? We need to bring the prefrontal cortex back into the game and say, take a step back that maybe you really want the cupcake or donut right now. We mm-hmm. all do. Yeah. There's nobody that goes by the donut factory and says, see, I really don't want that. We all do. But the adult in the room says, if you do that, then you're going to increase your risk for serious illness that may not be curable. Mm-hmm. And when we are able to embrace that, to take that uh, deep breath and maybe count to 10, whatever it may be, to pull the impulsivity away from the decision making uh, it gives us uh, the ability to really act with our superpower our you know our brain with such a large prefrontal cortex that allows us to integrate so many inputs of our cognitive function into the ultimate outcome
0: yeah yeah it reminds me of um The marshmallow test. I only came across this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure you're well aware of it. it. Yeah, yeah. So, for the listener, the ability to delay gratification appears to be a cognitive task that we need to really exercise a lot more on. And particularly, it seems particularly relevant for this as well as we're always going past donut factories. Right. (laughs) I mean, everywhere. I mean, I'm
1: walk down the streets of London and it's cakes here cakes there yeah your yeah. sweets and you deserve them because you're good <laughs> yeah 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 I mean Always. we grew up with that mentality if you're good you'll get uh, you know you'll get the sweet dessert yeah we call children when they behave you're acting
0: sweet yeah yeah
1: and what do you get on your birthday? you bombard your physiology with sugar, uh, doesn't do you any good.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's dive into uh, uric acid a little bit more. So most people, like you said uh, at the start, um, think about uric acid in the context of, of gout um, we think about it in the context of, you know, the painful toe and allopurinol and coltricine, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories use for that inflammation. We don't really think about it in the context of all the other drivers towards excess uric acid. And I think That's a lot right. of people listening to this will probably not make the connection. I'll have to explain it in the title of this podcast. But uh, right. uh, we'll, we'll, let, let's talk about uric acid. Uh, as So let's take it back to where you
1: and I first learned about uric acid. Yeah, yeah. We had a 15-minute lecture. That said, if your uric acid level's are high, you might get gout. And if you get gout, then you're going to take a drug. Let's move on. Mm -hmm. And that's how, even to this day, patients are treated. They come in with a gouty, painful toe, and they'll get put on their uric acid and perhaps colchicine acutely. And next patient, please, out they go, out the door. Well, this is not your grandfather's uric acid. This is a uric acid that, uh, as wonderfully characterized by a study appearing in 2016 that was entitled Uric Acid in the Metabolic Syndrome, from innocent bystander to, to a central player. I mean, it doesn't happen just to be elevated in obesity and diabetes and hypertension and hypertriglyceridemia. It is playing a functional central mechanistic role in causing these problems. For you and me, that's empowering because it's a very new and powerful tool, addition to our toolbox, our armamentarium, if you will, that allows us to help people
0: regain metabolic health. Mm. And, and so when looking at uric acid, how does it relate to all those other areas that we, we're not currently talking about? So you, you mentioned obesity, cardiovascular disease. What, what, what's the connection there? What, what's, what's driving? Well, Rupi, when we look at epidemiologic
1: research, first of all, that shows relationships. It doesn't necessarily demonstrate causality, so it's a correlative type of uh, pursuit. We see very strong correlations, and we've known this for quite some time with everything you just mentioned. So again, interesting that we see uh, elevated uric acid in correlation with hypertension, diabetes, obesity, etc. But mechanistically now, we've unraveled how it is that uric acid does its dirty work. And there are multiple mechanisms that it utilizes in an attempt to keep us heavier and higher blood sugar and higher blood pressure. Why? Because those were survival mechanisms. So they're very, very preserved, uh, very powerful, and they're self-regenerative. Meaning once they get triggered, they tend to keep going. So how many mechanisms are there? Countless. Uh, one of the more recently identified mechanisms is <clears throat> the recognition that uric acid powerfully inhibits the production and functionality of nitric oxide. Now, why is that relevant? Because nitric oxide does two important things in the human body, aside from serving as a neurotransmitter. A nitric oxide allows blood vessels to relax. So without its functionality, because uric acid is elevated, blood vessels can't open up Hypertension and poor blood supply to our organs might explain why people with high uric acid have about a 35% increased risk of ischemic stroke, a 40% increased risk of dying from a cardiovascular event. Because nitric oxide is compromised, blood vessels can't do what they need to do. The other issue with nitric oxide is it directly and significantly compromises both the production of Uh, how insulin works, and uh, in terms of insulin getting out of the blood vessel into the cell or to the cell membrane, and then the actual functionality of insulin once it binds to the cell membrane. So what I just said is that nitric oxide is needed for insulin sensitivity. Uric acid compromises nitric oxide and as such compromises insulin sensitivity and therefore contributes to insulin resistance. As a wonderful survival mechanism that you don't need, that I don't need. Uh, when we have insulin resistance, it paves the way for type two diabetes and all of the downstream issues related to that. And a- as a momentary digression, you know, recognize that becoming a type two diabetic may as much as quadruple your risk for an untreatable disease called Alzheimer's. So these are very real, important discussions. <clears throat> Every endpoint we can leverage to help people balance their blood sugar has incredibly widespread implications, not just for the brain, but for the heart and for the immune system and even uh, as it relates to cancer risk.
0: Yeah, I, I was, I'm glad you brought up the brain because I wanted to bring it closer to home for you as well in terms of how your cancer can impact uh, Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Are there any other links in that way, or is it is it mainly uh, via insulin resistance that you have that impact on the the negative impact on the brain? Uh,
1: it's mainly via insulin resistance. Uh-huh. We know that there are some important parts of the brain that are, in fact, though this is relatively new information, do in fact require insulin uh, for <clears throat> those neurons to be able to utilize glucose as a fuel source we know that uh, various areas of the brain can alternatively uh, function in terms of their energetic requirement with uh, using uh, ketones as substrate. Uh, And and while we talk about that um, and interventional trials, whereby people with uh, early Alzheimer's and even uh, mid-stage Alzheimer's have been benefited by a a ketogenic approach, uh, by and large, if we can preserve Uh, those neurons' ability to utilize glucose, uh, it's going to happen far earlier in the clinical course, even in the preclinical stage. In other words, when people are still cognitively intact. Mm -hmm. So that becomes a very, very big issue. But let me just expand that a little bit more if I can. We haven't had the opportunity to talk about this even at this conference. When glucose is elevated, as it is in the Alzheimer's brain, as much as fivefold in various parts of the brain, that right off the bat is a big surprise. That's kind of recent news that we're thinking, well, the brain is glucose uh, uh, depleted and therefore neurons are starving because they don't have glucose to utilize. No, as a matter of fact, it's not that there's not a lot of fuel around in terms of glucose, it's there, but the purveyance of that glucose to the, the cell and the utilization is where the compromise is. Mm-hmm. So this has become what is now known as the bioenergetic theory of Alzheimer's which works in concert with other various other inputs to realize the disease that is given that name. But that said, by consider it the law of mass action, if you will. Higher levels of glucose stimulate a pathway called the polyol pathway whereby glucose is transformed, intermediate is sorbitol, but ultimately into fructose. Now we're back to our fructose conversation. So you're not eating, or you may be, but if you're not eating fructose, you think you're in the clear. If your brain glucose level is now elevated, you are going to produce within the brain higher levels of fructose and produce within the brain uric acid. And think about that. Higher levels of uric acid have uh, has as its downstream consequence two very important players related to brain health and risk for disease. Inflammation and oxidative stress. We've characterized the Alzheimer's brain as being the brain on fire, a brain in which uh, even visualization of inflammatory activity is now possible. So it's a brain that is literally on fire. Uh, it's a brain in which various enzymatic pathways are compromised by oxidative stress. And further, it's a brain that is energetically struggling because it is an ultimately an acquired Mitochondropathy, the mitochondria within each neuron, and each neuron can have a thousand or more mitochondria, are trying to make energy for those brain cells. They are damaged by uric acid. So that's a powerful relationship then between you know uh, understanding that glucose in the brain is elevated, ultimately getting to oxidative stress and inflammation in the brain that is really a very powerfully damaging effect on the mitochondria. Now, when the mitochondria are dysfunctional, cannot produce energy, Mm -hmm. that triggers within the brain cell the pathway called apoptosis, the the suicide pathway. So now we've connected production of fructose in the brain to uric acid, to oxidative stress, damaging the mitochondria, to cell suicide Mm -hmm. and dropout, loss of brain cells as a consequence of this entire paradigm. And that explains a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of things that were kind of hanging in the ether there for a lot you know, many of us who were involved in research for an awful long
0: time. Mm, Yeah. And it it sounds, um, I mean, to draw a very crude analogy between the brain swimming in glucose but not being able to utilize it and there being mitochondriopathy, it's almost like in type one diabetes, where you have enough glucose in your in your blood system, in your blood uh, bloodstream, but the inability to put that glucose in the right places and partition it the the fuel correctly, so I, I I understand that, and I think the inflammation piece brings me nicely onto the other the other bit about uric acid levels and how that can negatively impact the gut as well. I wonder if you could talk a bit about uric acid and its sure. Fact, so, um,
1: so much is talked about it as it relates to inflammation. Yeah. you've written about it in your books, and uh, you know, uric acid directly leads to inflammation uh, as one of the very big issues. Inhibits nitric oxide, increases reactive oxygen uh, octave, oxidative stress, uh, leads to uh, insulin resistance. Many of the downstream effects of having elevated uric acid are you know, directly contributory ultimately to uh, metabolic dysfunction, and therefore the the whole panorama of chronic degenerative conditions well beyond the brain. But as it relates to the gut, uric acid directly uh, changes the array and functionality of our gut bacteria. It directly enhances uh, the leakiness of the gut and therefore contributes to increased inflammation by virtue of how that leakiness allows certain things to get out of the gut into systemic circulation and augment inflammation like LPS, lipopolysaccharide. It's also been interestingly noted that a treatment for gout, you're going to love this, uh, that is very effective in reducing frequency of gout flare-ups is fecal microbial transplant. Putting back into the gut of an individual with gout different, different bacteria, fecal material, from a, a person without gout. So there are a multitude of mechanisms here and uh, it's all being unraveled now and it's very
0: very exciting. Wow, I I, I can't imagine what that patient would have uh, would have questioned uh, when when being presented with uh, presented with gout and then it, being it all offered an FMT. You, present it. Yeah. I mean,
1: you know, over the years I've uh, broached the topic to patients about uh, will you consider undergoing a f- an FMT? Yeah. Uh, and I Across the board, never had a pushback. Really? Oh, so, interesting. I mean, even for a mother uh, considering it as a way wow. to help her autistic child yeah. Yeah. and having watching as that child regain his ability to speak, mm-hmm. uh, a woman who is profoundly compromised by just an overexposure to antibiotics and um, just regained her life, uh, not just with a fecal microbial transplant that she did at home mm-hmm. using her neighbor neighbor's fecal material but also by revamping her diet as well. I mean, gosh, she ended up on television in the States talking about this. And, you know, I get that it's distasteful and it's challenging, but uh, there's a lot of research being done using FMT. Wonderful interventional trial was conducted at the University of Arizona, a collaborative study with uh, Harvard researchers. Dr. Alessio Fasano, I think, participated in that study, showing dramatic improvements in not only the gastrointestinal issues related to autism, but also the neurocognitive functionality as well. So, We're just beginning to get our arms around what the potential can be.
0: Yeah. I remember, actually, you bring up a few case studies uh, back in 2015, I believe it was, uh, when I saw you speak, um, with parents who had autistic children, and they'd have the FMT, and they had some pretty drastic results, small numbers, but still impressive enough, you know, uh, to to want further investigation. Um, Looking at- Let let me finish that thought. Yeah. Not that this is necessarily the end-all home run,
1: but it's- another piece of the puzzle. We need to think about it, not only in terms of that therapy, that intervention in particular, but the implications about what it means that these kids have a messed up array of bacteria. uh, And how did they get there in the first place? So one thing we know is that the risk of of autism is dramatically increased in children born by C-section, where they don't have this Anointment of going through the vaginal birth canal and being uh, exposed to vaginal bacteria. So, uh, you know, what does that mean we should consider? We should consider, you know, having a more expensive, expansive conversation with mother and, and husband about uh, your mode of delivery uh, more than just, well, how long will uh, I be in the hospital and what will my scar look like if I elect. have a c-section sure a c-section is a life-saving technique we get that but it is you know sometimes i dare to say an issue of convenience Mm,
0: yeah yeah and i think it's those conversations that we're not having as much in traditionally practicing doctors and clinicians you know and after chatting to a lot of people here and over the last couple of years it feels like giving everyone a level playing field, optimizing the gut microbiota, optimizing someone's diet, optimizing someone's psychological environment as well, can essentially create the, the, the sort of level playing field where health can flourish as a sort of salutogenic a- approach, if you like.
1: True. But by and large, <clears throat> the provision of healthcare globally doesn't do what you just said, doesn't, isn't designed to allow health to flourish. It's designed to combat disease. So, um, you know, it's a far more feminine approach. You, you've been inside the lecture hall, you know, uh, that most of the people here are women. And it's because, you know, my sense is that their approach to life is based on femininity. It's more about nurturing as opposed to combating this or that, in this case, illness.
0: Yeah. That's a really interesting observation. I'm I'm definitely going to pay more attention to that because you're right. Every conference I've been to, it's largely dominated by, and a lot of, uh, People who follow my work and buy the books as well, are, are, are certainly um, uh, women. Um, looking at uric acid uh, a little bit more broadly now, with um, with the kind of diets that we've talked about traditionally when trying to reduce one's uric acid level, usually in the hope that their gout gets better or we can optimize right. with allopurinol, it's usually a, a low purine diet. Right. A lot of foods are purine in as well, but I, I heard you talk about actually from what we just talked about now with fructose being one of the main, main reasons as to why you might have a high uric acid level, we're looking at the wrong culprit. That's right. And we have we. <laughs>
1: uh, we it, it's been looked at for an awful long time. Uh-huh. And by and large, the messaging about uric acid is in the context of gout. And the, uh, you know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, well, is there anything else you could do beyond taking the drug? You know, in my world, is there anything else you can do before taking the drug? And uh, and by and large, you, as you correctly characterize, uh, it is about limiting your purines. I mean, gout was considered the king of diseases and the disease of kings. And it was thought that because they had such high purines in their diets that, uh, you know, the various meats and, and animal products they would consume, that led the way to gout. Reality is that gout didn't really begin, except for the past couple of hundred, of ye- uh, hundred years, Uh, in humans anyway, and uh, did parallel the introduction of sugar into our diets, which began in 1600s to a significant degree. Yes, purions are involved, but much less so uh, overall. It's the sugar. Mm -hmm. And specifically, it's the fructose. And mind you, a table sugar, sucrose, is 50% fructose. So that's a powerful exposure to fructose as well. But it's challenging that the fructose messaging doesn't make its way to the very popular mainstream clinic websites who say, yes, you've got to limit your purines. Matter of fact, you don't, uh, to some degree. Uh, There are a lot of foods that have fairly high levels of purines, like cruciferous vegetables, I might add. And we don't want to limit those. If you look at the NHANES Food uh, Frequency Questionnaire studies involving tens of thousands of people, they demonstrate that people with the highest consumption of high purine, surface vegetables, kale, cauliflower, broccoli, etc., have the lowest uric acid. Same thing with fruit. Uh, so, are there high levels of purines in organ meats and in small fish? There are, but uh, most people, I think, are best served by first targeting their fructose. That's that's the the best
0: bang for the buck. The culprits, as I'm sure everyone listening to this will will, will recognize, sugar-sweetened beverages, processed foods, donuts, orange juice,
1: apple juice. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people seem to fail to realize. And you know, we're here visiting and staying at a hotel, and you have breakfast, and the first thing you want to do is pour that, you know, 12 ounce glass of orange juice. That's not natural. I don't care who made it. It's not part. It didn't come from nature. The oranges were harvested, squeezed, put in a carton, on and on. And we would not normally, as hunter-gatherers, gather up cartons of orange juice and then drink that huge exposure of 36 grams of sugar in a 12-ounce glass of orange juice or apple juice uh, overwhelms our small intestine's ability to deal with the fructose load, which is about five grams at a time. Uh, So that overload of fructose is then processed in the liver and then sets the stage for increasing our blood sugar, increasing our lipid fat production, uh, activating the production of uric acid and all of those downstream issues that we've talked about. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I always ask people to just imagine how many oranges or how many apples are utilized to create that small glass of juice that you're about to consume. That's right. In the absence,
1: then, of fiber and the bioflavonoids to some degree, if it's been treated, uh, and certainly um, you know vitamin C. Yeah. So uh, yeah. it's not a natural experience to bombard your body with uh, that much sugar at a time. Mm-hmm. It overwhelms us, basically. And it sends a powerful signal to your
0: body Prepare for winter. Mm, yes, exactly, which is leading to the, the obesogenic effects and everything. Um, we talked a bit about the foods to sort of take out of the diet. What are the di- the things that we want to include into the diet that can be uric sure. acid? Local. Well,
1: <clears throat> uh, foods like red onion, for example, asparagus, uh, artichoke, uh, various vegetables, are uh, high in various types of what are called bioflavonoids that actually uh, help us reduce our production of uric acid. They work by uh, inhibiting the same enzyme that the drug does, allopurinol. The enzyme is called xanthine oxidase. So drugs that are high in these uh, bioflavonoids, like luteolin and quercetin, uh, tart cherries, for example, are long recognized as being uh, associated with lowered uric acid. So we can eat those foods and we can take those uh, active ingredients, if you will, uh, quercetin, luteolin, et cetera. Uh, as supplements, and really go a long way to help us lower our uric
0: acid. Yeah, talking a bit of, uh, in the context of our our body having ancient hardware and putting ourselves in a modern environment, we also would have been uh, exposed to different changes in weather changes in food availability things that we don't have to deal with right now i mean we're we're sat here in an air-conditioned room whilst it's like 33 degrees outside we had 33 degrees centigrade outside uh we have an abundance of foods flown in from all around the world if i want a cherry today i can also have one a cherry in december you know we're exposed to sort of this flat of of comfort, everything is is very comfort orientated. So, how do we actually push our body to uh, to experience some of those hormetic effects? Great
1: uh, question. <clears throat> There's a book that I just finished reading called "The Crisis of Comfort" mm. by Michael Easter, mm. and he he writes about the fact that we need. And, and the book uh, goes through everything you've talked about through, uh, but interspersed with his experience of. Being, I think, thirty days in the in Alaska, uh, having to hunt oh, animals wow. and you know really being challenged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but that said, uh, there is you know significant health up, upside to being uncomfortable and to uh, experience uh, these challenges to the extent that it is stressful to us uh, from a thermal perspective, a hot or cold, uh, from a caloric restrictive perspective, being uh, starved, if you will, or calorie restricted. Uh, from overdoing it with respect to exercise from time to time, and you use the term hormetic effect, of course. So that we, it's it's a lot like lifting weights. When you lift weights, you tear down a little bit of muscle fiber, then you build it back to where it was, and then a little bit more. So you end up net positive. That's how you build muscle, and and so it is with hormesis that we uh, experience the stress, we deal with the stress. We get pushed back a little bit, one step backwards, and end up taking two steps forward and we become better for the event.
0: Yeah, yeah. This adaptive mechanism That's I think right. is fascinating. And in the context of how we should be challenged at various points, we can definitely do things like um, exercise. We can eat uh, bioflavonoid-rich foods that have that hormetic effect at the cellular level. But what about um, the patterns of eating that we're, uh, we're accustomed to across a 12-month period? So- is there a rationale for having a different macronutrient composition in the winter versus spring versus summer should be introduced like a ketogenic diet at certain times and then a more carbohydrate rich diet at other times? I, I would say by and large, no. That may be a surprising
1: answer for it. And the reason being is that we don't have to adapt anymore for the change of seasons because our, our environment is totally controlled. We have clothing that keeps us warm. We have our homes that are heated to 72 degrees Fahrenheit, 365, so that the notion of trying to eat foods in season, why, uh, while that is I, ideal, when, the, when we are going to be confronted by seasonality, makes sense. I think it's less relevant today.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and since writing you know, your, your first books um, that are widely popular, influence a lot of people, are there things that you've changed your opinion on or you've, you've sort of progressed on or built on top of? Indeed. And I, I will tell you that um, that doesn't go
1: unchallenged. People say, oh, Dr. Perlmutter, when you wrote uh, Life Guide, a book I wrote many, many years ago, you told us we should be on a low-fat diet. That was, what, 25 years ago? And <clears throat> you know, that was a mentality at the time based on currently available science. So uh, messaging should change over time. And I think that it's important for people who, who follow, dare I say, influencers, to recognize that you want them to be adaptive and flexible uh, and uh, be able to admit that things are different now. Uh, I'd say mostly a, a, biggest, a, a bigger change in uh, our diet has been uh, more plant-based for a variety of reasons, though we're not fully plant-based, that's for sure. Um, I think over the years, uh, the, the science on the value of exercise has become much more well-defined. So that has become much more, plus I'm older, and so it becomes much more important anyway. Uh, so that's become much, a, a much more central part of the messaging. The value of sleep has become much more central as well. Uh, but I would simply say that things are going to change. I mean, the whole uric acid paradigm is relatively new, despite the fact that the first book talking about uric acid outside of the constraints of gout and kidney stones
0: was written in 1898. Oh wow! Yeah, wow! <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and so with that in mind, and I think it's it's it gives you a lot more respect. I think the fact that you're willing to change your opinion on things from the low-fat era to the era now. What do you make of um, the high-fat, the ketogenic uh, sort of modes of eating? Is that something that you encourage, or does it really depend on the context of the patient? Do, do, do you see it as a therapeutic tool, or there is no tool.
1: question that a ketogenic diet can be therapeutic mm-hmm. in my world, as it relates to both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's? Uh, so that that research is very compelling. Uh, m- my uh, sense is that as far as the population at large is concerned, to get into from time to time a state of ketosis, I think is reasonable to keep that mechanism active and available uh, as uh, having a flexible physiology. Uh, I don't think that remaining in ketosis uh, full on all the time is necessarily the goal. And I think most of the uh, advocates of ketogenic diet uh, would would probably agree with that. That cycling
0: back and forth is is the way to remain most adaptive and flexible. Yeah, yeah. I I think um, certainly periods of going into and out of uh, can be useful, particularly given um, the the clinical context, and also just generally um, changing one's diet from time to time. We had Walter Longo on the podcast uh, a, a year and a bit ago, and and more recently as well. And I think that concept of stressing your body from time to time is is going to become necessary, particularly as we're quite comfortable. That's right.
1: I I spoke to him yesterday uh, uh, about these topics. And, um, I think it's a job in process, a work in process. I think we don't yet know, but I think one dictum that remains central and that is, you know, the work of Dr. Lauren Cordain in the sixties that, uh, we really need to, Uh, consider um emulating as best we can the environment of our ancestors in and trying as best we can to reestablish this relationship uh cultivate a relationship between our environment and our genome Mm -hmm. our environment and our evolution the gift that we've received and we we can't i mean we can't go out and hunter be hunter-gatherers anymore uh but that said we should look upon our current environment in terms of how it deviates most aggressively from that of our ancestors, and really address those those factors. Whether it means you know more stress by getting out of doors more, and being in a less controlled environment, certainly limiting uh, our exposure to fructose uh, and other things that have entered into the modern diet. These are not hard to accomplish. Yeah. Do you fast at all? Oh, we do. Yeah. We do fast. Yeah. In fact. We did last year uh, our social media fast, and we had... Oh, uh, nice. (laughs) I think we had 10,000 people fasting together. Five. Oh, it was was wonderful. We had a... a I forget what you call it. It's a, it's a special name for when everybody gets together and does something online. So yeah, answer is yes.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And was that uh, social media fast, or was that like a, a like an FMD thing? Oh, I like get a, where you're going. Yeah, no, yeah. No, <laughs> it was a food. Fa-
1: it was not eating for. Okay, yeah, right. But it was done on social media. Yeah, but fasting from social media isn't makes sense
0: to me as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to ask actually, as we bring this uh, conversation to a close. I mean. You've been a pioneer in a, in, a, in a lot of communities. I mean, over here you're, you're very well known as well. Um, you must have got a lot of backlash over the last couple of decades of publishing books and everything. Thank you, You yeah. bet. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you deal with
1: that? I, I, I'm supported by that. Yeah. I mean, the, when I stop getting pushback, I'm then I'm status quo. And Ronald Reagan, one of our presidents, once said that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we're in. So I think it's it's good to challenge whatever we see around us, right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've been wrong about uh, things that we have uh, been in favor of uh, for uh, at times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Thomas Edison said that he learned more from his 99 failures than he did from the one success. So uh, you know, people say, "Well, what you're doing is outside the box." That's not the goal. The goal is to make the box bigger, yeah. to make to uh, really augment inclusivity with ideas that seem fringe, because ultimately they'll people say, "Oh, it becomes self-evident that we knew it all the time." Well, not so much. But the whole idea with uric acid—it's we're right at the beginning of that uh, whole incorporation of uric acid into our understanding of what. Leads to metabolic dysfunction. And I, I suspect that in two years, when we get together on a podcast again, or whenever that may be, we will be appreciative of a, a much more expansive understanding of the role of uric acid in metabolism.
0: Yeah. Maybe not. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I love that growth mindset. That's brilliant. Uh, just uh, as we as we bring this to a close now, any mental health tips? Like, how do you look after your mental well being on a day to day, particularly when you're traveling and and, uh, and and moving around so much? Well, I have a wonderful
1: marriage, first of all, and that uh, more than anything, I think has kept me uh, in a great place. Uh, you know, beyond that, I think exercise is important, dedicating to sleep. Uh, with travel especially, limiting to almost no alcohol during the travel part, uh, I think is really very important. Um, And what I I really try to do more so lately is to do one thing at a time. Have a conversation with you right now. uh, Have a meal at a given time. Not be checking text messages. It's so tempting. Mm -hmm. I want to look something up. You know, uh, ask siri something because i really want to know who started that movie because it's part of our conversation but not to do it to be dedicated to the moment i think is really important
0: yeah well that's wonderful advice i'm getting married this year so uh, uh, hopefully uh yeah i've taken your advice already i'm sure i have she doesn't listen to the podcast anyway so it's fine (laughs) Uh, well i would
1: say also now that i know you good for good for her as well to marry you
0: Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, It was an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. You can check out the Doctor's Kitchen app that you can download for free from the App Store. We're building the Android as we speak. Plus, you can subscribe to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every single week. I send you something to eat, something to listen to, something to read, something to watch, and with a funny joke at the end every single time. I'll see you here next time.